This is an echo from the past, a rerun if you will. And in this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. This one was released on the 25th of May 2014 and this is episode 2. And this episode features a talk by Rupert Sheldrake and Mark Vernon. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome, this is episode number two of Natural Born Alchemist and my name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to look a little at atheism. Uh, I used to be an atheist myself, sometime in my late teens uh, I became an atheist. And for me it was more a rebellion I think against uh, the dogmatic and fundamental behavior of religion than any disbelief in a higher entity. Also, the classic image of a bearded man in the clouds seemed a bit ridiculous to me. Uh, But as I grew older, I uh, drew closer and closer to nature and to spiritualism. And finally, a few years ago, when I went down to the Amazon to partake in some ayahuasca ceremonies, I came in direct contact with a force of some sort. Uh, The word God does not do it justice. Um, For those who are unaware, ayahuasca is a psychedelic brew. Some consider it a drug, I consider it a sacred medicine. And we'll talk more about ayahuasca in future episodes. Uh, This force I encountered, or God, or whatever you call it, uh, was not something uh, you pray to, not something to follow, not something to understand, only something that I felt I was a part of, like in Star Wars, where there's a force. It's more like this. Uh, And I have experienced it, and that's why I feel it's the only truth I've discovered. Like I mentioned in episode 1, the most important measure of truth is direct experience. To be certain that there is no God, or to be certain that there is a God, are equally stupid certainties. We cannot be certain about anything, and uh, neither position should exclude the other. Uh, But uh, let's now listen to a talk uh, by Rupert Sheldrake and Mark Vernon. That's been lifted from the Science Set Free podcast, with, which can be found on iTunes or on Rupert Sheldrake's own website, sheldrake.org. Uh, you can see the program notes for more relevant links. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist and author of numerous scientific papers and books. Rupert is behind the concept of morphic resonance and morphic fields. Uh, he proposes Uh, that memory is inherent in nature and that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. I imagine we will go deeper into morphic resonance in a future podcast. For now we shall focus on atheism. Uh, Rupert will be talking to Mark Vernon which is a British writer and he blogs regularly for The Guardian and his website is markvernon.com. So now let's listen to Rupert and Mark talk about the hidden god of atheism. Hello, this is the Science Set Free podcast. I'm Rupert Sheldrake and I'm here with Mark Vernon. We're going to talk about the hidden god of atheism. I was very struck recently when I was reading a book called God, um, The Experience of God, Being Consciousness Bliss by David Bentley Hart, one of the most interesting books on theology I've read for a long time. Which I think you've also read. Mark. Yeah, yeah, I, I got a lot out of it too. Mm. 
I think it's a really deep-thinking book, and what he's arguing is that the sense of the nature of God, which is found not only in the Christian and Jewish tradition, but also in Islam and in Indian thought, um, is of God as the ground of being, the source of all being, the source of consciousness, and uh, indeed the source of joy in the world, and that these uh, are features of divine nature which are embedded in all of reality and in all, all our minds. So God isn't a kind of add-on extra um, to a worldview which could function perfectly well without God, um, but an underlying feature of all reality. I mean, he's comparing the post-17th century view, where we have a basically atheist mechanical universe, where if you have a creator god who's like an engineer who makes the world a machine, he's a kind of add-on, uh, add-on optional extra. And for anyone who accepts the materialist worldview, then um, that kind of god, a kind of creator god who starts the world machine off in the first place, is a kind of optional extra. But he's, what he's doing in this book is showing that even atheism presupposes many of these traditional features of God. And I was very struck by this passage. He says, The atheist who proudly and persistently strives to convince others that there is no God does so out of a devotion to the absolute, to the highest of values, to the divine. He's really saying that atheists put a very high value on the truth, on reason, and on aspiring to a truthful view of reality. That's why they reject an image of God that seems to them untruthful. But their devotion to the truth, to science and reason, is born out of a, a, a sense of values or a sense of the power of reason. And why should we trust in reason? Why has reason got so much to commend it? Why does human reason um, enable us to be, do science so successfully? How can we make models of nature that correspond so well with what nature is like so that we can build you know, moon probes, space rockets, computers, jet planes that fly? There's something about our powers of reasoning that correspond to the nature of nature. And therefore... There's something about the devotion to reason that we find in atheism and materialism which presupposes that, first of all, our minds are reasonable and, secondly, that the reason in which we share is something that applies and is reflected in the whole universe. Otherwise, science wouldn't work. Mm. Now, this is a tra traditional argument for God, that God is the source of reason and consciousness and provides an order in nature which corresponds to the ordering of our own minds, because they have a common source. And therefore, in a sense, implicitly, atheists are affirming uh, this kind of God and a, a traditional argument for the existence of God. I mean, I think there's a lot in that, in terms of um, the use of reason and the trust in reason and the trust that the world is intelligible um, and that uh, we're not just, as it were, creating delusions in the in the sky that have certain kind of technological benefits, but that mm. aren't really in touch with reality. Um, I suppose that, um, slightly to play devil's advocate, just maybe to tease this out a bit more, um, there would be different kinds of, of atheism, though, that wouldn't say that. I mean, perhaps a sort of Marxist or a Freudian atheism 
would say, no, no, it's not reason that we're basing um, our worldview on and our, our attempt to engage with the world. Um, in Marx, for example, it would be the material nature of the world. That would be the grounding um, of um, our attempt to understand things in a, a sort of overarching kind of way. Or in Freud, um, he, he was a very um, committed follower of a certain kind of Darwinism, um, believing that there are kind of biological urges um, that, as it were, shape our lives. And if we can understand that and the way that they have a total grip on our being, um, then we can make some, uh, we can understand ourselves better. Um, so it needn't be reason um, that the atheist turns to. It might be a kind of materialism. It might be a kind of biologism. Do you think that still means that there's a kind of implicit God in that? Well, I think that what, what a Freudian, or at least a Darwinian, would have the problem in explaining is that our minds have been shaped by natural selection according to Darwinism. You know, we've, we are as we are because of evolutionary pressures and natural selection, not because of any preordained correspondence between our minds and the nature of nature. Um, so you would expect um, natural selection to have produced human minds that are good at dealing with the kinds of challenges humans have faced over the millennia, the kind of thing evolutionary psychology deals with. And those challenges include getting on with people in social groups because we're social animals and we have to have a social intelligence an intelligence that's good for technologies that we need for hunting, making stone axes or solid objects or later machines or tools um, and th things that have a purely practical importance um, but that wouldn't in itself lead you to expect that a human mind could understand the whole of the cosmos, the nature of distant galaxies, the laws of hydrogen atoms, you know, the Big Bang theory itself, you know, analyse the cosmic microwave background radiation. So these go way beyond what a merely survival-based um, natural selection type mind would be expected to give us. And although some Freudians may take that view, um, I think anyone who's in, most, most atheists in my experience are materialists, and materialists are people who believe that science has understood the nature of reality, and they point with pride and reasonable pride to, to you know, understanding atoms, hadrons, quarks, you know, galaxies, big bangs, quasars, you know, uh, together with all the engineering triumphs that science has led to. So most of them are proud, and rightly so, of this vast achievement. But this vast achievement, you see, presupposes, first of all, that the universe is governed by laws, that it's reasonable and that law-like, and that things we investigate in laboratories here on Earth, a tiny fraction of one galaxy, um, over a relatively small period of time, you know, a couple of two or three centuries, more intensively in just a few decades, that these discoveries apply to all of nature. This presupposes a universality, which is built into the generally accepted scientific assumption of universal laws of nature. Most scientists also assume these laws are fixed from the moment of the Big Bang. Um, and these are both assumptions that were built into science in the 17th century by the founding fathers of modern science, who were actually Christians. I mean, Newton, Galileo, Descartes, Kepler, were people who believed in God, but they thought God was a, essentially a mathematical mind who created a world reflecting 
a divine mathematical order and that science has been able to discover, unveil this mathematical order which is the mind of God. Yeah. So uh, let me just have one more attempt at perhaps an alternative view which maybe um, you could have an understanding of the universe that had within it pattern and order and law um, but that didn't necessarily lead you to believe in a god. Uh, I'm thinking here of um, a sort of platonic view you might say um, where um, you, you might be a, an ancient Pythagorean that um, sees maths as um, the code or the language within which nature is written. Um, but you didn't you really at that period um, have a full-blown monotheism emerging, I don't think. Mm. Um, quite uh, what the alternative would be, um, I'm not in, not, I can't, can't quite remember. But certainly you could look at a physicist like Roger Penrose um, these days who writes mm. about these things. And he would say that he's a committed Platonist. Um, he does believe that when he's doing mathematics, he's exploring a mathematical world. And for reasons that aren't entirely clear to him, that mathematical world corresponds to the physical world. And so to do the maths is also to explore the physical world. Mm. Um, but he doesn't feel inclined to believe in God, although he's actually open to mm. um, the, the mysterious way that um, the world can be explored through mathematics and reason. Well, I think that there's a strong platonic strand in modern physics and mathematics, and always has been ever since Pythagoras. You know, there's a very strong part of it. Um, and I agree that if one just takes a platonic view, you can think there's a kind of intellectual realm beyond that transcends the physical world we live in, um, which some people would think of as God or a divine mind at any rate. Um, and some may say, well, this doesn't correspond to the God of Christianity, or, but it is, a, a, nevertheless, a transcendent realm of consciousness or mind. Well, for some people, that would be pretty close to God. But I think where it runs into trouble is in accounting for the fact we live in a world where things change. Platonism is a world basically without change. And you can have a perfect set of equations that would you know, describe the universe, imagining that such a thing were possible. But as Stephen Hawking ends one of his books by saying, is, yes, but what, it is that, what is it that breathes fire into the equations? Because the equations by themselves are intellectual, transcendent abstractions with no life, body, or reality. So the universe we live in has life, body, and reality, and change. And so how does science explain that? Well, it explains it in terms of energy, and so the, the, the basic principles in science is a formative principle given by the laws, universal laws. Um, personally, I don't think they're fixed. I think they're more like habits that evolve. But just taking the standard assumption, they're universal laws, mathematical in nature, ultimately. But science also reveals, since the 19th century, universal energy as the basis for embodied reality. And universal energy... Um, in the 1850s uh, was shown by unifying you know, heat energy, work energy, um, moving energy, kinetic energy, potential energy, chemical energy, uh, light energy, um, uh, and indeed the energy of fields, the potential energy in electrical and magnetic fields. So what this showed was that there's a, one kind of energy underlying the entire universe, manifested in all the different forms within nature. But the energy um, that's in the sunlight now can go into plants and 
then go to sugars and starch and become food for animals. It becomes chemical energy. Some of it's reflected, some of it turns into heat energy, and so forth. Um, and the energy in an electric plug uh, you can use to drive a tape recorder, an electric heater, a hairdryer, a toaster, a microwave oven, etc. Um, so the energy is promiscuous and can take any form. So now, what is that universal energy, you see? Because the science reveals us that there's a universal energy which is underlying all reality that can take many different forms. Again, it's a unifying principle that underlies all things. Now, to my mind, um, in a particular, in the standard orthodox interpretation of Christian theology, then that energy is the Holy Spirit, or at least its source is the Holy Spirit. In Greek Orthodox theology, um, all the energy in nature is the breath of life in all nature, which is the breath of God. So there's a sense in which the patterns and forms of nature, which are the laws and all these things, the mathematical principles, are like the logos, the, the, it's the platonic aspect of the Christian Trinitarian theology. The logos is the principle of form, pattern, order. But the other, the, the driving principle is energy, which is a universal thing that gives life and light and being and actuality and causation to everything in nature. Now, science has arrived at that as part of the materialist worldview, and again, this is another aspect of a traditional understanding of God. Yeah, I mean, there would be a detail there about that the scientific energy is different from the energy of the spirit. Um, it's the same words, but it's used in very different, meaning different things, isn't it? Well, maybe it is, but what it, the energy in science is the capacity for doing work. But that's, uh, that defines a particular kind of energy, physical energy. A cause-effect kind of energy. A cause-effect type of energy. But you see, um, if one extends the use of energy to a, a spiritual realm. There's a kind of cause effect in the realm of spirit too, isn't there? A sort of psychological in, in energy, you might yes, say. Yes, there's a kind of psychological energy. Yeah. Now, one could say that's metaphorical and the scientific one is real. But if we just take the purely physical level, um, and after all, from materialists, there is only the physical level. There isn't another kind of energy. The energy in your mind and mine is just coming from the using of ATP or some biochemical reactions in the nerve cells that keep the action potentials flowing. Um, so they would say that the, the energy that enables us to think and have any kind of conscious life, and our minds are always changing, they're full of activity, this is physical energy. So without going to the argument about whether there's another kind or not, just taking materialism in its, in it, at face value, there's only one kind of energy, and even mental or conscious energy is part of the same physical energy that flows through the sun and is in, inside stored in atoms and so forth. Yeah. So I should just mention, perhaps for the sake of completeness, I think there'd be a third atheist, atheistic position, oh, yes. which would be more nihilistic, um, which would question science, and that's perhaps why it's not taken up so much by atheists today. But this would be Nietzsche's view. Hmm. And Nietzsche's view would be that when we realised that God was dead, um, as he famously announces at the end of the 19th century, um, he also makes the observation that it's going to take a long, long time for us to give up the habits of a God-shaped world. So he says, you know, we, um, even though we don't believe in God, we're still pious, he says. We still have the old kind of pieties hanging around. And for him, I think science 
would be one of those old pieties, the idea that we can look at the world and make rational sense of it. Um, but I suppose, I think he gives a sort of periodicity of centuries rather than decades. Mm. So we're still, for him, in that unravelling process. Um, and that what awaits us further down the line when finally we've given up these deistic pieties um, is a kind of um, perspectivism where we just struggle um, through our own um, abilities or not um, to make sense of things as much as we can. Um, I don't know quite how you might want to respond to that, but um, that would be another more nihilistic view, I suppose. Well, I think it's parasitic on the, the standard materialist view. The reason Nietzsche could say God is dead is because by the, the end of the 19th century, many intellectuals had stopped believing in the God of the world machine and instead believed in science and reason in one form or another. Marx thought that economics was a science and science and reason were the way forward. And uh, regular materialists thought that science would lead to this understanding of the whole of physical and biological reality. Um, so the reason why God could be proclaimed dead by Nietzsche was because many people, intellectuals, had shifted their faith from explicit religion to what I think is the implicit religion of materialism, where you still have universal principles, you know, transcendent laws, you know, universal energy, etc. They'd found a kind of scientific version of God um, and didn't need the older version and then could proclaim God is dead. So <clears throat> insofar as Nietzsche lived in a culture where that created the context where he could make this pronouncement and where he could say that we'll by our own efforts go on and struggling, etc. Our own efforts include very largely science, and science as practised presupposes these basically theological principles or implicit divine principles of universality, changelessness, transcendent mind and the eternal laws, etc., etc. Um, so, in a sense, I think that kind of atheism is 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 a kind of nihilistic, parasitic view that depends on the more mainstream kind. And after all, that kind of atheism is deeply depressing, and indeed it was deeply depressing for Nietzsche. It wasn't a way forward. It, I mean, Nietzsche went mad. I mean, we don't know exactly how or why, maybe syphilis, whatever it was. Um, he wasn't a very brilliant example of the power of that approach. So I'm sure there will always be people who take that approach, but I think the mainstream atheist approach, the vast majority of atheists I meet, and I'm sure that you meet, are actually card-carrying materialists. Yeah, it's interesting with Nietzsche, because although you know his life um, has a horrible end, um, in some ways you could see that as saying, well, he was actually prepared to go follow his convictions through to the bitter end, um, which wasn't. And, and this is a slightly different question, but maybe it follows on from that, which is, um, does it really matter if atheists have this hidden God? I mean, atheists may not like it if they're talked about in that way. <laughs> it may be very annoying and irritating, um, although, you know, you make your reasons for thinking that that's the case. Um, but does it matter? And I wonder if it does matter, actually, because... Um, what Nietzsche seemed to realise is that um, if there's no God, then you can't pretend that human beings are God either. You can't sort of have a naive optimism running your life. You've got to go through all the way to the, to the nihilism that he saw. Um, but if you don't follow him, for the good reason that doesn't look, it's not a very attractive way to go, um, is there a kind of um, 
uh, an optimism um, that we human beings can sort of sort ourselves out that follows from this hidden god of atheism and um, that actually might be quite destructive um, for us human beings in, in, in other ways. Well, I think in practice, the, the hidden god of atheism has been combined with kind of scientific progressivism. It's, you know, since the Enlightenment, it's been coupled with um, a progressive view, you know, mankind marching forward into the future with science and reason to transform humanity and the whole planet. Um, I mean, and this is the agenda of every government in the world today, is the you know, economic growth through science and technology. That's everybody's agenda. And that definitely uses science and technology as the main driving force of this change, and that is the Enlightenment agenda. Um, but I would say that, that the optimism built in it is, is an act of faith, and in a sense it's a derivative of the Judeo-Christian model of history, which is of a journey in time leading towards an end or a goal. Oh, I suppose I'm wondering something slightly different, although I, mean, I, t- I take that point, which is that um, this optimism itself is self-defeating. You know, so you mentioned their growth, economic growth, and yet um, it does seem to be becoming increasingly the case that this involves consuming the planet. Um, so mm. that kind of human-level optimism that somehow we can move ourselves to a sort of future utopia mm. um, actually um, eats itself up. Um, that would be one way in which um, this hidden god um, that takes on human form, if you like, or human forms, is dangerous. Another, another example of this that came to um, mind the other day was I was um, reading about love, and um, a philosopher here in London um, called Simon May makes a very interesting point about the prevalence of romantic love in the modern world. And what he argues is that um, human beings search for unconditional sources of love, and traditionally this has been found in God. God is... Um, the, the, the being, as it were, that um, offers unconditional love to human beings. But since people stopped feeling connected to God or stopped believing in God, um, they now turn to other human beings for this unconditional love. And so it's quite common to read um, about this, the, the myth of parental unconditional love for their children or when people fall in love, they have unconditional love for each other. And of course, this is a complete disaster because um, it puts way too high expectations on people that are mm. after hu- all flawed human beings. Mm. What should have been directed towards God, as it were, is now directed um, mm. towards other human beings with, you know, with very unfortunate and very personally felt bad consequences. Mm. Well, I think the, the first of these points, you know, humanism... Um, the, the economic growth through science and technology, Enlightenment rationalism, gives rise to uh, secular humanism, which really takes on that progressive view together with a secularised version of Christian ethics. You know, the inclusiveness, not being racist, you know, all that kind of thing, which is part of the liberal humanist agenda. Mm. Um, but, I mean, humanism, of course, has the problem that it's human-centred, as the name implies. It's all about humans, hence humanism. Um, And if we have a philosophy that's all about humans, human progress through science and technology, human rights, human welfare, human prosperity, um, human culture, um, which is what it is about, and rightly so, because we are human and we have to think of these things, it does leave other things out or make them much more uh, subsidiary. And hence, their focus exclusively on human welfare and growth, as you say, is eating up the planet and causing 
tremendous destruction and devastation and may lead to catastrophic uh, consequences for humanity in the future. Um, so I think the human emphasis is, is indeed dangerous. And I think one of the things that traditional religions of every kind do is show that it's not just about people. It is about people, but it's also about people in relation to the rest of the universe and that which is beyond the visible universe. Um, so this leads to a narrowing of perspective and a narrowing of, of focus, which is indeed dangerous and disastrous. Um, but I think that's because um, Enlightenment rationalism got connected with the secularized form of Christian humanism um, and disconnected from uh, the wider reality which I think a religious perspective gives. But it is a kind of a narrow view. I completely agree about the romantic love point. I think far too high an expectation is put on personal relationships, um, particularly romantic love, and for that matter, marriage. And I lived for seven years in India, and it was normal in India for people to have arranged marriages. It still is normal for many Indians to have arranged marriages. And from a Western romantic love perspective, that sounds dreadful, you know, that you're married off to someone you don't even know and stuff. And But the model of marriage there, I think, works better in the sense that the, I think it's quite often the case that well-arranged marriages can work better because they can work out people who are compatible, families that are compatible. They also have their astrological consultations to make sure they're compatible astrologically and the wedding happens on the right date. And they try to get it right so that it'll work. Um, whereas our system is based mainly on people meeting at random in bars, clubs, or even online, um, and having high expectations of romantic love, which are often disappointed, lead to a very high rate of divorce and, and unstable families. Um, so I think that is indeed part of a, a result of putting too much of our human need into the human arena, whereas in tr traditional societies, part of this need for a love that goes beyond oneself, an unconditional love that connects oneself to something vastly greater than the human level, is focused on God or on the religious perspe perspective of one kind or another, and not on another human being, which can, in most cases, only lead to disappointment. It's very interesting, the discussion about marriage, because in a way that, for me, throws up the difficulty that we're in. We're, we're, it feels like we're sort of living in, in between times, because you know, I, for one, would not want to live in a society um, where there was arranged marriage for the simple mm. fact that I'm gay and it would be a disaster. Mm. Um, so I couldn't go back there, but I understand um, the... Um, the difficulty of trying to build connections purely on some sort of notion of, uh, of romance as well. Mm. There's far more involved in a relationship there. Mm. Um, so for me, that, that, actually, that particular issue does capture some of the struggle that, um, you know, whilst I agree with you, there does seem to be a kind of hidden God in many of the atheistic assumptions which we live in today, which we live with today. Um, it's not straightforward just to kind of leap back, as it were, to um, a view of God that may have pertained in medieval times, if it, you know, if it did. Oh yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all, really. I, you know, I think we we have to move, start from where we are. 
But I think that one of the places where we are is that atheists and people who believe in God actually have a large measure of agreement you know, about the mind and its connection with nature, however one explains it. The extraordinary effectiveness of science needs explaining somehow. And atheists somehow implicitly assume that our minds are somehow related to nature in a way that goes beyond what you'd expect from natural selection in the Stone Age. Um, and the, the main difference, then, is whether this ultimate reality is conscious or not. The atheists certainly think there's an ultimate reality. The mathematical laws of nature, transcending nature, universal energy pervading all, all the universe, and so on. Um, but the usual assumption is it's unconscious. And I think the big shift happens when you say, yes, there is this universal reality, but it's conscious, not unconscious. And then it means that instead of an atheist feeling separate and isolated from the rest of the world, which is seen as unconscious, whereas there's this inexplicable conscious mind going on in humans and maybe lots of other animals, um, then instead you have a view of the whole universe having an underlying consciousness to which we can relate directly through our own consciousness. Then I think one enters a kind of religious frame where one's own consciousness is part of something much greater. The atheist already goes most of the way there because thinks of the matter and the energy in his or her body as being part of a greater thing and the laws that govern his or her life as being part of universal laws. So it already accepts most of this. But that final step is, I think, where things could go. And I think when we enter a religious view of things in the 21st century... It's a religious view of things that is not going back to pre-science, but it's a, a view of things that is actually informed by the discoveries and advances of science, and therefore it's something completely new and different from anything that's existed before, which is what, in my opinion, makes it exciting and interesting. Yeah, you remind me of something which David Bennett Hart mentions in his book as well, or discusses in his book, about how actually um, this business about the world being animate or conscious is not a sort of optional extra again, as it were. It really is goes to the heart of the matter for him. So he, he, he argues that empiricism, um, the idea that the sense data that I receive directly connects to the reality that's out there, is itself based upon a kind of supernatural assumption, um, which is that my inferences from the sense data I receive do actually connect with that rea reality out yes. there. Um, already, and um, within, uh, in this very sort of intimate way, a lot of the assumptions associated with the world being conscious in the God sense um, are, are right there, operating all the time, in fact. And finally, I think it's extremely interesting that several atheist philosophers have actually been moving towards a panpsychist view where they're seeing consciousness as pervading all nature. Galen Strawson, for example, um, or Thomas Nagel. That actually we've now got a development of materialism and atheism, because both of them are atheists, which is putting consciousness right back in, in the natural world. And of course it remains a question to be discussed, perhaps in another discussion of ours, as to how that differs from a view, a traditional view, which sees consciousness as pervading the, the, the physical world. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really like uh, the quote that Rupert makes from uh, the book The Experience of God by David Bentley Hart. 
Uh, he makes this quote very early on in the talk, and uh, I want to quote it again and include a little more of it than Rupert did. Um, so here it goes. The atheist who proudly and persistently strives to convince others that there is no God does so out of a devotion to the absolute, to the highest of values, to the divine. It's an old maxim, one that infuriates many unbelievers, but that happens to be true nonetheless. That one cannot meaningfully reject belief in the God of classical theism. If one refuses to believe in God out of one's love of the truth, one if one affirms the reality of God in that very act of rejection. Yes, so, if one refuses to believe in God out of one's love of truth, one affirms the reality of God in that very act of rejection. Something to consider if you're an atheist. Um, in the next podcast, we'll be talking with a musician that, like me, spent some time in the Amazon drinking ayahuasca. While he was down there, he made an album that fuses modern music with traditional medicine songs that are used in ayahuasca ceremonies, songs known as Icaros. Uh, so that's what you can look forward to in episode 3. Okay, let's end this episode with a little music. When I lived in Oklahoma many years ago, I stumbled upon a local band that created a nerdy kind of pop uh, that I could not resist to fall in love with. Uh, I even got to see them live and there were about 5 people in the audience. And I always recall thinking that this was a great shame. So now with this podcast, I can get a chance to influence the world a little by exposing you all to Love Button. And their latest album is called Eat More Fruit and is out now on iTunes. I'll post some Love Button links in the program notes. Uh, so go check them out. So here's Love Button with the song Elephant Song. Freedom is in the mind. Well, this I gotta see. Elephant return to me He's gonna wrap his trunk around the world Carry it away